0: Welcome to episode 2 of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Bongani Kona and in this podcast, I talk to South African theatre maker, Princess Nzimklongo, Rwandan poet and storyteller, Eric Wanki Ngangare, and Sudanese digital storytelling curator and cultural manager, Omnia Abbas Shokart. Princess Nzimklongo is an award-winning theatre director and co-founder of Platform, which for many years provided an alternative space for artists in the theatre industry.
1: I see in images, you know, so when I see something and it speaks more than words for me, that's the understanding I get from the power of theatre.
0: Erin Ngangare, known also by his stage name Wan Key, is an independent poet, spoken word artist, MC, performer, actor and blogger from Rwanda.
2: Poetry allows me to make mistakes, allows me to have room and to be honest it's just about exploring and, and the freedom to do and to be.
0: Omnia Abbas Shokat is one of the two founders of Anderea, a bilingual digital multimedia cultural platform and cross-cultural enterprise.
3: Culture is the way I'm probing and understanding and, and healing and questioning and being compassionate and empathetic and also knowing that there's things that I could never fix or even address in my lifetime.
0: In this conversation, we explore war and its remnants, coming of age in a time of great turmoil, in the DRC, Rwanda, Sudan, and South Africa. The importance of telling stories that contest both history and statehood, and other forms of silence and organized forgetting. We ponder what it means to produce work that can contend with the violence of the present. Here's our conversation. Thank you everyone. So I think the three of you, in one way or another, are all storytellers. And I'd like to begin by drawing out some of the stories of your childhood. The theme of our conversation today is art in times of crisis. And in earlier conversations, you've all expressed how this moment with the shutdowns, curfews, patrolling police or military is in some sense not new. You've all lived through moments of great historical turmoil. Eric, maybe we could start with you, because your biography crisscrosses both the Rwandan genocide and the wars in the Congo. You were born in Goma in what was then Zaire during Mobutu Sese Seko's reign, and your family then moved to Rwanda in 1997. May I ask you to speak about those early years?
2: Okay, I think we have to start even before... Um, so the the first exile movement in Rwanda happened in 1959. So, I mean, it's controversial in the way that some people call it a revolution. Some people call it like... Um, it has, I mean, depending on who's writing the history. So we go through this... Um, interpretations of times based on also who curates the the narratives so my great-grandpa my grandma they moved to to Zaire back then and then my mom was born in Bukavu in 62 and I was born in Goma in 81 so that means there's like three generations already living in exile when I was born and the conditions of living in exile are not, you know, first of all, I mean, there's like, you don't have access um, to jobs, to, to work, to employment and stuff like that. And at the same time, you also treat like, um like a, like a foreigner who came to, you know, to occupy space that's not their space. But what's interesting is because where I was born in Goma, that side used to be Rwanda prior to the Berlin partitioning of Africa. Right. So that means until the end of 1800, it was part of uh, of Rwanda. So me, my father is Congolese and I didn't get to see him much, but I was raised by my Rwandan family. So, you know, they instilled in me their values, culture. So that's how, that's how I became who I am today. And it's interesting because coming to Rwanda in 97, it always felt like, okay, we're returning home. Yeah. Because for my mom, for my grandma, my grandpa that was returning but for me was really like coming to live in rwanda for the first time you know but at the same time it's like i i was born in exile in a country that used to be you know rwandan at the same time so i'm in exile in the country of my father and the way you treat it as an alien i mean i'm really used to being the the other you know yeah
0: thank you for that eric omnia May I ask you to talk to us about growing up in Sudan? I'm also cognizant as I'm asking the question that ordinary everyday life exists also in the midst of great tumult. But perhaps what I'm curious about is the passage from childhood innocence to political awakening, because so much of your work involves the building of bridges between people and communities. So I'm curious, when did that political awakening happen and what device did you encounter as you were growing up?
3: Um, I was born in Sudan, and I left when I was about three, and I grew up in so many different places. I uh, grew up in the Middle East, I grew up in Libya, and then it was about 10 years stretch in Egypt, and I, I remember the first time, let's say this moment of a political awareness must have been, I want to say 6th or 7th grade, when one of my teachers, I can't remember in what class, um, it was the height of the civil war in Sudan and South Sudan, between Sudan and South Sudan, well, the government of Sudan and um the rebels um, of the SPLA in South Sudan at the time. Um, and I remember the teacher mentioned it and I just burst out crying. Maybe it was the way who described it. It was probably the time when um, the issue of just like the raising of villages and killing and arson and everything was just very, very visible to the whole world, um, even though it's been raging for about 20, 30 years. Um, and in total, I think it's been like decades of, of war. Uh, but maybe that was probably the first time I was very aware of of something not right happening in my country. Um, and then I know my parents have been super, super um, politically aware. They were always engaged, they were always talking about it. That was what everybody talked about when they came over to visit us. Uh, but I had no interest at the time, I would say, and, and no connection, really. I was living so far away. Um, when we go to Sudan, it was very distant. Um, I would just kind of see family and friends. Uh, also Khartoum is very insulated from war and its remnants. Um, but when I, I moved for a bit less than a year in 2013, and I was traveling, it was the first time I traveled to Darfur. And... I went to the IDP camps and I met people who've been through the war, who are still living through the war um, up until today. Yes, we do have a, a peace agreement that was signed a few months, well, weeks ago. Um, but the reality, the lived reality, is still very much unsettled, very much displaced. Um, and that was when I was starting to be more aware about my Sudanese ness. Um, you know, when you live outside, it's Sometimes very hard to connect with your identity, with your people, with your issues because there's everyday life and that pulls you wherever you are. You're just kind of immersed in that. So I spent a little bit less than a year and then I went away for a year and a half and came back and I've been. Kind of living in Sudan for the last five years, and that was my education. That was the the time that I really learned the country through its people. Um, I took a plane and just went to South Sudan in 2015 just to see what Juba looks like. And a few da- years down the line, I had the opportunity to also go to aBA which is a contested area between Sudan and South Sudan. Um, and then I went to a Jong Thok, which has Sudanese refugees in South Sudan. I went to Kordofan. I went to Darfur. I went to Kassala. I, I really started discovering the Sudan and the South Sudan and through that and I'm still learning through that I think the one thing I became very cognizant about is that there's so much trauma and there's so much shame and guilt and lots of really heavy emotions that when I wasn't in this geographical area I was able to kind of dissociate or disengage from but now this is this is not something I can run away from. This is my everyday life. Um, and I think I've definitely embraced my kind of full identity of all the, the problematic aspects of being Sudanese, of being a millennial Sudanese, of being someone who was in the diaspora. I move a lot now um, for Andaria and I. I carry that weight you know especially when i'm in south sudan when i'm in sudan and when when these topics come up with, of the war of the poverty of the of the issues they just plague us till today and we're in such a bad place yes we've had a wonderful revolution it, it uprooted an incredibly brutal dictatorship but we're still quite <laughs> at the bottom of the barrel it doesn't look like we're going to get up anytime soon so that's that's complicated and i think the weight of being you know of that nationality of being from this Region from this country that has divorced its southern um, sibling or, or or partner, it's it's heavy. It's heavy. It's it's not easy at all. And it's you know, I would never have enough time to explain it. And I don't think I'm fully aware of everything, but I'm exploring, and I think I'm putting um, a lot of, a lot of effort into it in my own way. And that's that's my bridge. Culture is my bridge, and and I think that awareness itself is is me growing up from where I started um, back there in the seventh grade, where tears were the only solution I had.
0: Thank you so much for that, Omnia. But I actually have a brief follow-up before we move on to Princess. You mentioned before we started recording that this is a critical moment in your in your history. May I ask you to elaborate on that?
3: Um the reason why this is a critical time is because we have a three-year transitional period that is between civilian and army forces and in our history transitional periods have always failed (laughs) um they've always brought us People who who continue to stay, so basically they never really transpired into a real democracy. Um, and the other thing is because this revolution was violent, this this dictatorship before it was violent, and we, we we're kind of we're not even catching our breath yet, um, and we're not we're nowhere near that. So we're still really on our toes because we have so much to fix, and at the same time, there's sabotage happening all the time. Um, it sounds like a conspiracy, but it's it's real life. This is really our lived reality. There's so many challenges every single day from every faction of our life and in our being, and it's really stressful. But we know that if we manage to get this right, we may be on the right path for the first time since colonialism. And if we get this wrong, we're just gonna I don't know um, face another cycle of violence and brutality and, and dictatorship and, and all kinds of ships, <laughs> unhealthy ships. So yeah. I'll leave
0: it at that. Thank you so much, Omnia. Princess, you grew up in a small mining town in South Africa. And in a way, it's difficult to think about the history of segregation in South Africa. And I guess more particularly the nature of South African capitalism, at least from the beginning of the 20th century, without thinking of the mines. How did you write this world? How did you make sense of this as a young girl?
1: Most of my foundation was from my schooling. And I went to a, a Catholic school from Crèche. so this is from five years old until matric. Um, and I think a lot of uh, those teachings, you know, uh, sort of shielded me uh, from what was happening, you know, around us. I mean, I still grew up in the township, so, you know, you couldn't escape what was happening around from as a child you know and growing up as well you know pursuing your own uh, uh, direction so i always think of of that of you know i spent a a huge chunk of my life in a catholic school and there's something about that you know i i'm not saying like uh, i'm catholic right now or what have you but i think that foundation for me really molded a lot of who i am and the questions i had and i try express in in the work that i do so for me i think i started to question another side of what is really happening and i would find that in theater you know you know holding a a script which let me in into what was happening in soweto you know sort of taught me you know about our history at a later stage you know so I, my, a lot of my discoveries happened after I left uh, school and started to explore really what I wanted to talk about, you know, in, in my work.
0: Um, on that subject, thank you so much, Princess. Can I ask you to elaborate further? What kind of refuge did you find in theatre and how did you start to see yourself as a theatre maker?
1: I think from being in a mining town, we were fortunate that we had someone like Ishmael Muhammad who was there when I was there, you know, so my encounter with him sort of opened up that world of storytelling, you know, um, specifically with theatre. And I was fortunate to be part of a theatre group where we were able to not only create work, but also be able to travel and experience new work by going to Grahamstown, So I think that for me was really uh, the explosion of really wanting to pursue theater making. It was really a great program because it just exposed us to everything and anything. Uh, and, and that set a great foundation for me to, to start questioning and seeing that, you know, some of the answers I, I receive from the work. So yeah, I think it just sparked a lot which really pushed me to pursuing it and uh, investigating, exploring it.
0: Thank you so much for that, Princess. And yourself, Eric?
2: All right. So, I mean, like I'm exploring my childhood and my adulthood. They're very different in terms of like space and environment. So in, in Congo, things are on a high pace and it's like everybody is on their own. So. I'm not gonna say it's disorganized it's organized in the way people live they, they find the way through and they manage to live for a long time and as an adult i live in rwanda where it's pretty much organized anything you have to do we have to go through channels of like uh, getting approvals permissions and things like that growing up what i get today as a for example like i make my own stages i mean if i have to perform i have to think about all this um props and everything else is just like it comes from my childhood because we had to make our own toys we did not have uh, we did not grow up in, with families that you know could buy us toys and things like that even affording food was a uh, was like uh it was not easy we used to eat once a day you know we eat at 4 p.m so that you're having dinner and lunch at the same time we don't know about breakfast you know and so when you grow up in conditions like that you are you gotta you gotta find solutions to your own problems all the time. So in 1994, when the French army came to to Congo, I think they had a base that was serving for their participation in in the war and genocide in Rwanda. So they built a huge fence around them where we used to play football. And so every night we'll go with stones and cut the fences. And with the fences we'll build cars. <laughs> you know, all these cars are uh, made out of wires. And then in the morning we probably sell them to someone, you know, as you know, they come to the town and stuff like that. So for me, it has been like this idea of making things happen yourself, it comes from that that part. Now I live in a space where people have to wait to be told what to do, to be shown what to do. And for me, I just that's not just how. I grew up, I grew up, you know, if I need something, I got to do it. And so this pushes me into different ways of exploring life, you know, and what I love about art is that finally my ideas, my imagination can come to life, you know, Um, because everything else seems to be structured as a poet. Um, that means, I mean, I can go to spaces, explore them, and then narrate what I saw. And this comes from, I didn't even know it. It comes from uh, from my family, my mother's side family, because, yeah, uh, my ancestors were storytellers, you know. And I didn't know this. And, and this, I figured it out in, in the way, in the process I was looking for and searching for my roots at the same time. So... I mean, that's why it's hard to define myself when people ask me to describe myself. It depends on actually what I'm doing, you know. At the same time, I'm a researcher, you know. So it's just like a bunch of stuff trying to explore and find, um, trying to put things together. So poetry helps me with that. And poetry allows me to make mistakes. It allows me to, to, to have room for uh, criticism for what I'm doing myself, for how others are doing, and to just like evaluate over time, you know, uh, the quality of the work itself. And, I mean, to be honest, it's just about exploring and and the freedom to do and to be, you know?
0: Thank you so much for that, Eric. Uh, Omnia, Andaria is a digital and cultural platform amplifying stories from Sudans and South Sudan and Uganda. Can you take us behind the curtain into the conversations that led to the creation of this platform? I guess my question is, what were you responding to? Um,
3: What Andaria is responding to are two things so one is the disconnect between the different countries starting with our own sudan and south sudan um so just the feeling that this generation is the last one that will ever know a Sudan um, a larger Sudan no matter how painful that was we could have given it a shot if we had better leadership but we didn't and here we are we accept the circumstances we accept where we are at this point in history but we'd like to build bridges um, this is a normal thing we speak the same language so many of us can speak the same this common Arabic language we are uh, we, we share like similar heritage we eat similar food there's just absolutely no reason to cut off our, our bonds just because we're now two different sovereign countries so it was it was this attempt to build a bridge between Sudan and South Sudan this this generation this millennial Gen Z generation that um, had really no hand in what happened and we just kind of watched and, and saw everything fall apart so on one hand that was to build that bridge and then the idea became that actually we're so isolated from the rest of the continent and the rest of the world as well arguably but more importantly from the rest of the continent and we should put an effort we should we should reach out we should connect we should ask people to connect with us we should invite people over we should open up our country and the way to do that something that was doable for you know just me and my co-founder were just sitting there what what can we actually do um my background is in science and and projects and her background is in digital marketing and it seemed that building cross-cultural projects across these different countries as well as um, creating very interesting cultural positive content about these countries written by their own people was a solution that was doable it was scalable we could add countries as we go we can have bigger projects as we go Um, and it was something that will be archive. It's going to live on the internet, which is the language of the world, and it's going to be easily shared between different people that we may never have the resources or ability to reach, you know, deep down. Um, you know, at the very north tip of the country, or very south tip, or someone who's reading it in a different continent, even the accessibility. Um, arguably, I know a lot of people would say no, you you should go to people in their villages, uh, but the villages are coming online, <laughs> and that's just the reality. Um, so we're we're trying to be inclusive by having this platform that everybody can contribute to, but the message is clear. We're building bridges between different communities. We're using arts and culture, women, technology, literature, film, to build these conversations. And we're addressing issues that are plaguing our our communities such as hate speech such as racism such as misogyny and so on and so forth so it, it started as a as a way to to create positive um, impact and create bridges where bridges were burnt or non-existent uh, because of politics because of policy and it became a tool to connect communities on on much serious much urgent topics that we think are um, worth addressing um, in this context of culture, uh, where people are much easily drawn to these conversations rather than hard news. So this is what it responds to.
0: Thank you so much. Princess, likewise, you ran an independent performance space called The Platform, attending to the need to develop new uncensored work in the theatre industry. I want to ask you a set of conjoined questions here. What conversations led to the creation of this space? And could you also elaborate on what you mean by uncensored work?
1: Okay. Um, I think the, the conversations for me on what led to um, us or, or me exploring an independent space for artists was, I also needed that space for, for my own work. And when the opportunity arose and the connections were, were great, we were able to find a space um, you know, that would allow us to not only, well, I thought to create my own work, but also to open it up to artists who were just struggling to connect to mainstream. Uh, so at that time uh, in 2012, I had um, received the Standard Bank Young Artist Award for Theatre. In 2010, I had Austria approach me for, my, for a young director's project which meant I had to take a production to Austria. So then SABC1 approached and wanted to document my process as a theatre maker. And because I was already in mainstream at that time, you know, there was already this underground young, uh, unheard of voices who were reaching out to me, you know, wanting to also have a similar journey. So I had already a lot of people reaching out, you know, just asking, What is the process of creating their own work? They're not reaching or, or unable to make connection with the mainstream. Uh, Where can they basically create this work? Uh, And their platform was born. You know that I had space at that time was purely to rehearse my work, that needed to travel. But then I thought, okay, I only rehearse afternoons. I will be moving and traveling soon. You know, let's open a space that can actually cater. To artists who have you know these exciting ideas and new work uh, so for me you know the censoring part was that of if as a theater maker you aren't given a platform to showcase whatever your voice wants to say at that moment in time it is censored and theater worse you know those spaces are, are are not spaces open to the artist they uh, are spaces that in a way deprive the artists because of how some of the spaces are managed and run so we wanted a space that would be for the artist where the artist would come with any idea um with any concept with any medium you know uh we would be that space for them and all they'd need to do then is bring in the audience that they want to see this work uh so suddenly we're hearing new voices, we're hearing new stories, we're hearing current, you know, and for me, I haven't been in the industry for ages, I'm still young, right? So if I'm looking for work that speaks to me, my generation, and I struggle to find it, I was starting to question where those voices live, where do I see those voices, where do those voices speak? Um, So having a space became so important because I began to understand that there is no place for those voices to be heard. Um, Yeah, so I think from that, there was a lot of freedom and a lot of amazing work, you know, came out uh, from the space.
0: Thank you, Princess. Um, Eric, I'm coming back to you. You work under different sorts of pressure. I guess you function in a context where history and statehood are inextricably bound to each other. History in some sense is the property of the state. How do you as a poet and a storyteller navigate this contested space between nation and narration?
2: All right. Um, so if you understand the history of Rwanda, I mean, it's been a history throughout, like from monarchy times, we can talk about it's the 1500s. There's always been a sense of controlling the narrative. Like um, there was a college of poets, those poets that will write the stories of their time, of the kingdom, of how they operate, how they manage. There was a poet for every um, event, war, poetry, uh, farming poetry. There was uh, the pastoral poetry is even big, still practiced today when you go to weddings. So you have all these uh, poetry that have become somehow ritual. So they're part of like, a, you know, rites and also uh, traditions. And then um, from 59, there was a creation of a new narrative that was, um anti-the previous one, which was like anti-monarchy. And then there's a you know a new government since 1994 the government of unity and reconciliation, and the stories are around this narrative. Now, the to question any part of history, right? So basically that means you're exposing yourself to backlashes. Backlashes are in a sense that I am a free spirit. That's how I see myself. I'm also part of this world. If there's any narrative, there's also me, and I'm a part of it. I can be quiet and just, you know, be like a background uh, thing that that's there. Um, but I'm not here for decor. You know, I'm here to, I'm here to live. And my life, I I decide what I do with it in so many ways, depending on what I want. And I just refuse that somebody's gonna tell me what to do with my life. You know, and so now. As I, as I perform, as I write, as I explore, I realize actually, you know, there is so many other stories. Because, I mean, when we grew up, there used to be stories they told us about ancestors and stuff. But then to go and find elder people who would tell you the stories, so you start to connect the dots, you start to connect the times. And you realize actually there might be some, there might be a pattern that's led to where we are today, you know? It's like a, you, I start to see things in cycle, I start to see the patterns now as a society, as a nation, as a people. And uh, for me, I just wanna play my part, you know? We live in a society where a narrative is very important because narrative shapes and has shaped and has, turned, has transformed an entire nation, you know, for so many different ways. It's always been about the story that people are told. And right now, what's interesting is that we have the internet now. Now with the internet, it's really hard to control a narrative because there's so many stories. Now everybody's a journalist. Everybody's tweeting about their life on a daily basis. And right now, we're in a space where the government can release a statement, and the people would protest online. You know, so these we're in these shifts, and I think it's a it's a beautiful time to be alive.
0: Thank you so much, Eric. Omnia, I want to ask you about the recent arrests of Hajuj Kuka and other fellow artists, but in a roundabout way. In a prior conversation, you'd mentioned that in the protest leading to the fall of Omar al-Bashir after three decades in power, a brutal dictatorship, which you'd called it earlier, a space of possibility opened up that has since closed down. So may I ask you to revisit those months and to elaborate on, on what you meant by that.
3: Yes, um so I was referencing the sit the peaceful sit-in that took place in the city of Khartoum as well as other cities in Sudan and it spanned April May and then early June it was forcibly dismantled um men were killed I think somewhere in the hundred plus plus um hundreds were also killed Injured um, and it was a whole just brutal way of shutting down something that was so beautiful so liberated and liberating um, that we haven't seen in, in decades in Sudan uh, not just in Khartoum, but all of Sudan and just um, I was reflecting on that period and how walking through the different entry points to so the sit-in. I've only been to the one in Khartoum, sadly, because that's where I was at the time. Um, and I was in and out a lot of the country, but every time I would go back and, and would go in, it was like a new world. Art was everywhere. Um, hundreds and thousands of people would be coming in. There would be events. Artists flew in from all over the world to so these artists. They performed revolutionary songs that used to be played hush-hush um, in certain places um, to the complete shock that people knew the lyrics to them. I think that was the beauty of it, uh, is that there was impact there. It was just completely undercover. And more importantly, in that thriving artistic environment there were very important debates taking places um, it, was, it was it was the liberals versus the conservatives and the different parties debating different groups there was the debate science um, the debates of, of art the debates of philosophy it was just thriving um, and under all of that there was a very strong bond of organizing so there was a lot of volunteers making sure that there's sewage treatment and, and water provided, and, and food, as well as different entry points and exit points for people, different places where people could sleep, different people places where people can access toilets. It was this like mini city um, that reminds, reminded me of something called Christiania in Denmark. It was kind of like it existed in, in its own sort of dimension, um, and everybody went, like I don't know anyone who has not stuck foot inside the, the sit-in. But the problem is, the re- it was it was forcibly disbanded because the power that it had to keep the revolution alive, that the interest that it garnered from international media, from everybody, everybody was sympathizing, everybody was happy that, oh, Sudanese these people did this, they uprooted a dictatorship of 30 years that nobody really thought that would ever go away. Um, something that was so rotten that has completely changed the fabric of society, that has completely changed our actual map. Um, so in that moment, I think the, the the coalition of militias and 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 an army just thought mm, this is not going to work, so they disbanded it, and it was ugly, and it was disgusting, and it was scary, and it was terrifying, and we really thought that this is it—we're going down a very very ugly um, civil war sort of path, and then. The country recovered, um, but now we were plagued with so many different issues. There were economic issues, there were bre- bread queues, there were petrol queues, there were power shutoffs, there was water shortages. And what happened is all the, the energy of the youth was driven towards making people's lives easier. So they were trying to address all these problems with, while the government, the, the coalition government, which is army plus civilian, um, They they were trying to figure themselves out. How do we organize this? How do we go about this? How do we lead a transitional government for three years? They were trying to fly in and get all kinds of approvals and and permissions and and buy-ins from different partners and befriend countries and so on and so forth. There was a lot to be done on their side, uh, but they completely let go of of the essentials of of the Sudanese person. So people were were dealing with that, um, but other serious things were also taking place. Like in the East, there was a lot of conflict going on there, and the government had to constantly shuffle back and forth to try to fix it. The issue is, these artists, these people who were creating beautiful things to first raise awareness about the protest and the injustice from years before the revolution, and then during the revolution where they were motivating people to keep going, uh, creating lyrics about what is freedom, what is justice, what do we want, why do we want it? They were also drawn back into the civil society sort of environment, and they kind of rushed to be part of that. Um, which kind of started pulling the artistic movement away from all of this. You did not see as many songs, you did not see as much graffiti, you did not see as much art. I mean art it's felt, it's heard, but also corona was not kind to us either. Um, the country shut her down, of course, like other countries in the region, the airport was closed, the movement was restricted, etc etc. So even art was was um, forcibly brought into the home and, and not in the public spaces where it really thrived. But the issue came that, the issue, that, that, that what you mentioned, Hajuj Kukan, that the other 11 um, artists, or 10 artists, including Haji, um makes 11, they were practicing at their headquarters, at the headquarters of their initiative, and then a neighbor um, was the one who called the police on them. And the whole thing just turned out very ugly and There was mistreatment and humiliation, but the whole thing really brought back memories of a regime gone and It kind of put us on our toes that if this can still be done and they could be in jail for three weeks and all this international noise could be made and no one would you know, bat an eye from the government side Then something is broken on the inside and we haven't touched on that yet. So I think this is really what what I was um, referring to and that's that's my concern now as someone who works in the cultural field. Um, I was wondering, should we go back in the shadow? Should we start um, thinking of, of how to protect ourselves? How do we start going back underground? Do we need to kind of divide what needs to be underground? What needs to be above ground? What does that mean for the general cultural movement? And these conversations sadly are not being had. I think this is really the biggest problem right now. Still COVID is, is plaguing us. Still restrictions are there. Still we have so many issues like the petrol is just not letting go. This this issue is just not going away. Um so it's it's there's so much pressure and we have not gotten to that state of mind where we can fix this and address it and lobby against it. Um and, and this is the people have been exhausted you know ever since it was 2017, 18, 19, 20. It's been very tough years. Um, so it's just I think the the, the the lesson here is we're aware that something is not right And the need is to mobilize again and start acting towards it and and to counter it so that we gain the real freedoms for this art movement, for this art industry, for the ecosystem at large. Um, But the whole experience kind of maybe was a wake up call. And I think that may not have been the worst thing to happen, but it was definitely um, a huge disappointment after so many months of, of protesting and so many years of resistance.
0: Thank you so much for that, Omnia. Princess, I'm coming back to you. I'd like to ask you about the countrywide university protests in South Africa in 2015-2016. The Fees Must Fall protests the Roads Must Fall protests were a pivotal moment in the country's history, but it also seemed an important moment for young artists. And may I ask you to reflect on that?
1: Yeah, I think um, that was a very crucial moment of uh, people speaking up, you know, and not accepting just the way conditions are. I remember I was having a conversation about leadership, you know, and uh, what or who we see as leaders, especially leaders of our times, you know. And I think from that movement, a lot of strong strong voices from females came out, you know. Slingue Lushaba responded to that movement as a creative. um, And I think for her, she was also questioning, what are we as artists as well? doing you know to to assist these voices how do we use our work as well you know to to speak up uh, so when I think of reflecting on that time uh, I remember her work and how she uh, uh, created a performance art piece right outside of Vitz University uh, speaking towards the movement in, in in the arts which I thought was so important whether it was documented or not but uh, for me spoke to how we as artists as well you know participate in such movements whether you're an activist or not you know we we have voices that can speak and support you know uh to those outcries and i think i connect a lot with artists because i'm a theater maker um and i haven't used my body you know as a tool to speak towards uh, a movement you know Uh, and i always connect to artists who can um whether it be in poetry whether it be in dance you know so for me i'm I'm always seeking to extend myself through other creators because i'm a storyteller who sees and maybe who jots down and creates i always need an extension and i always find the best ways to collaborate and we try to do that a lot with you know projects that are community-based you know because for me um there are places where yes, we'll capture and hear it louder, you know, which was the, the movement uh, uh, for Fees Must Fall, but it's also about what is also happening within the communities, you know, uh, uh, within those spaces, uh, students don't even get to get to that point of, you know, having the privilege of being in university you know so who speaks for those you know what i mean so i I always try to see what's the uh, trickle effect that goes and bleeds more into the you know the the less fortunate as well so it it gets us thinking if they're struggling the struggles are are not dealt with you know we still have a long way to go where we really reach uh, uh, as many uh, disadvantaged people as we can you know so a movement like that speaks loud attention is on it you know people observe the whole world sees stories are told um, but the work still needs to be done and I think that's where I try to connect with, with with the arts is how do I reach into the communities and hear you know what furthermore struggles are they happening and how we use the arts to, to have that conversation
0: Thank you so much for that, Princess. And just to give some context for our listeners, Wits here refers to the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg and Lengue Lushaba is a fellow South African artist and also a co-founder of Platform. But before we move on, I'd like to read something by the South African short story writer, Stacey Hardy. This is what Hardy writes. Today we live in a society scarred by history, subjugated by the spectacle of global capitalism marked by inequality and alienation. The question for me as a writer is, can we find a way to write that is equal to this moment, a writing that captures and confronts the present with its new urgencies and particular forms of violence, including violence done to the body and to language? Princess, I'd like to invite you to respond in relation to gender-based violence in the place you're located.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, currently I'm, I'm, I'm busy... Uh producing a work called Red uh, uh with Ibakwe. It, it responds to gender-based violence in a way where it places the audience to, it, it forces you to respond physically, you know. I, I always say I can't explain this work, but when I hear that, it's, uh, it, it, it's exactly that for me, you know. For us, it's about doing and questioning you know constantly and every time we come back to this work there's never a a question of why Uh, uh, it it always needs to be told it always needs to move because we're always engaging with people who need to hear even though we think the message has is out there it actually isn't you know and we have to find different ways of constantly engaging with the community on the effects of gender-based violence we always Need to come back to work or to writings that speak out to to uh, injustices that happened within our country um, and gender based violence is one that seriously needs attention in whichever form or method uh, so our our response is the red family cycle uh, and having that conversation in in theater.
0: Thank you very much, so I've actually got last question, but that's going to be for you, Omnia and Princess. Ben Okri writes that without stories, we would go mad. Life would lose its moorings or lose its orientations. Even in silence, we're living our stories. Thank you to each of you for giving of your time and sharing your stories. And perhaps in closing, I'd like each of you to reflect on that. Princess?
1: Yeah, I think for me, um, uh, the importance of storytelling has, has always lived from a young age Uh, to now, Um, doesn't matter whether I'm receiving it or or I'm telling the story. The continuation of that is is, is crucial. Where, how uh, um, is something we are continuously working on and uh, the pandemic has shown us that there's uh, other ways of uh, um, archiving but also allowing our work to travel and it's not always relying on, you know, traveling to the other country, once that was stripped away from us, we had to find other ways. The story still continued. And I hope for for every artist, um, regardless of restrictions, uh, red tape, corruption, whatever it may be, there's always a way to tell a story. Um, and I think, yeah, like, I'm just grateful that we, even through hard times, are, are, are still telling those stories.
0: Thank you very much, Uh, Omnia.
1: So they say that history is written and dictated
3: and elaborated and described by the person writing it. And we as a people, as a content, as um, just a a boiling plate of beautiful diversity have always had our stories told for us on our behalf and that disenfranchised us for millennia, basically. the stories that we tell now with our voices in all these, we can call them democratized platforms because they're pretty much going everywhere very fast, especially on the continent. People are leaping from telephones to smartphones and they're skipping the phones all together. Um, This is an opportunity for us to tell those stories, to archive them, to document them. Of course, the challenges are there. There's algorithms that favor um, the New York Times, you know, for example, or or other uh, foreign or Western publications or information portals rather than our own. But the fight continues. And I think slowly we're going to reach a point where um, there's no choice but to open it up. Uh, Policy and legislation are catching up on all these algorithm biases and and all these discriminatory practices. Uh, But even just for ourselves, to be able to tell our stories, to be able to share them, to be able to connect through them um, with common languages, with, with beautiful visuals. I mean, just the visual arts from Africa right now is going through this beautiful spurt. Um that to me is the importance of it. We need to tell our stories for our own selves, to document it, to be able to have a voice that is our own um, and to down the line, look back and say, this was what's going on. And hopefully we learn from it all uh, but we're able to reflect on it and see the growth and see the, the opportunities that have arisen and um, what we've made from it.
0: Thank you so much for that, Princess and Omnia. And perhaps in closing, Eric, May I ask you to recite one of your poems? And yeah, I guess we could end it there.
2: All right, so this poem is called um, Histoire Histoire. So the first, already, uh, the title is like, so you have Histoire with a big H, you know, um, which means like a history, like the history of a country, of a nation, of a people. And then it's Histoire with a small H and S at the end, which is like the stories, so basically it's like stories and history you know it's like having a narrative inside a huge narrative again so it's like um not conflicting but trying to negotiate my 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 space within so here it goes it's in french statue du christ au lieu de la résistance l'animiste érige une croix à sa résidence les petits porteurs ont des pères blancs les grands glorieux se retrouvent perdants Les armoiries remplacent le tambour, la patrie laisse l'espace au bourg, le vastal est désormais maître, mais le maître est très très de traître, mais tous des nègres de l'exploiteur. <rire> un culte inconscient de leur créateur vieux pion dans un nouveau jeu, les auteurs inversent les rôles, hors-jeu. La lecture impose le silence à l'oral, l'écriture change au cours de l'histoire. Troisième ébauche, toujours à refaire. Main gauche, main droite, bras de fer. Statue de barbarie, symbole d'héroïsme, usurpation d'esprit au nom du christianisme. Nos cités portent les noms de colons et cités baptisées ton prénom pour être colons. Art, culture, religion, langue, terre, arbre, homme, femme, enfant, matière première, histoire, science, pouvoir, que reste-t-il à l'Afrique à part son âme qu'on échange pour des cartes de crédit Nos révolutionnaires crient « Ubuntu » pendant que nos camps de frères déciment nos bantu Silence Oui, silence. Comme on sait si bien le faire quand la violence n'est visite qu'à travers les fissures de nos fenêtres. Les mains en l'air, comme si rien ne nous concerne, alors on danse sur du house, I mean, afrobeat, moderne, renaissance de l'Afrique avec un chapeau western. Nos dirigeants d'ailleurs se comportent comme des gangsters. Moi, je suis le petit peuple. Mon sort ne m'appartient que dans leurs discours. Quand j'ouvre ma gueule, Eh ben, I'm la ferme pour toujours. Soudan. On me demande d'être content pour rien. <laughs> Tiens, c'est ça ta récompense en tant qu'artiste contemporain. <laughs> yeah, that's it.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for yeah, for giving of your time again. Really appreciated.
2: Thank you so much. Thank
1: you, Mgani. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. That's the end of today's conversation. The Archive of Forgetfulness project is co-curated by Huda Tayob and Bongani Kona and is made possible with the support from the Goethe Institute. The second series of the podcast will feature architects, writers, artists, academics, and musicians from across the continent and beyond. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more details.